trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. So did you tune in today just to find out what's going wrong in the world? Okay, I might address a few of the things that are going on there, but uh, I want you to know this is not just going to be a litany of complaints. Nope. I'm going to spend some time telling you about some things that are going right, things you and I can and should be doing to uh, better take charge of our own lives and focusing on those parts of the world that we can actually improve as opposed to simply sitting and stewing over all the things that, uh, that we really have no control over whatsoever. In fact, let me let me just go ahead and buckle my rant belt here because I, I feel a I feel a good rant coming on here. I'm so disillusioned with mainstream media. And by the way, this includes Fox News. So if you're thinking, well, at least we got our conservative talk radio and whatnot. I'm really disillusioned with all of it. And it's because the, the narratives, and yes, there are a lot of false narratives out there. I think, you know, the major mainstream outlets I'm going to use, for example, the Guardian in the UK, the New York Times here in America, their job is to make sure that we are um, aware, if not, uh, you know, if, if not to, to simply promote and enforce, this is what the, uh, this is what the elites, the, the people who are putting forth this narrative, here's what you're supposed to believe. And, of course, it rarely squares with reality. In fact, we're going to be talking a little bit about this later on in the show as we talk about all the excess deaths. Do you remember how mainstream media absolutely obsessed over COVID? Not just the deaths, right? They had the the big black and red graphics of COVID deaths worldwide and, you know, the, the ticker showing every person who's died and, oh, my gosh, it's hundreds. Oh, my gosh, there's millions, you know. And then they were focused on the cases. Oh, look at this, you know, and essentially equating every case with a potentially lethal outcome. And it was all very calculated and it worked very well. You could not turn on the news, even if they're talking about, well, there's a uh, Teamster strike going on here in Chicago, blah, blah, blah. Still, there's that little COVID ticker going on and that little black and red graphic, you know, and those blood and doomy colors there to, to inform us there's a terrible pandemic and people are dying right and left. Or so they wanted us to think. Now, I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but... Let's remember that uh, for the vast majority of people, we're talking about a virus that had a 99.9% survival rate. Like a ridiculously high survival rate. The people who are at risk are the people who would be at risk during the flu season. The very old, the very young, those whose immune systems are compromised in some way through chemotherapy or through existing uh, comorbidities. All that stuff still plays in. But for most of us, it just wasn't that big of a deal. But we were led to believe that it was. And so when now you have excess deaths stacking up around the world, isn't it odd how the government and the news media are very, very quiet about this? Especially because they don't want to, you know, encourage anybody wondering, well, now wait a minute. Now that we have the vaccines, that should be way down. Yeah, now it should, shouldn't it? 
Okay, again, I'll get to that more uh, coming up probably in the third segment of the show. But uh, that's that's the reason why I'm saying limit your time watching mainstream media. Not because, you know, those ideas are too dangerous, but just simply you will have more work to do in terms of sifting fact from fiction, truth from error, etc. If you are, you know, uh, if you're accessing mainstream media, and that includes Fox News. I'm sorry to tell you this. That's going to upset some people. Well, Fox News is the only alternative we have of, you know, media that actually works for us instead of against us. Nope. No, it's, it's all pretty much corrupted. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to walk around, you know, just making cave drawings or something like that. Just understand that there's a lot of narrative management going on. I really loved Annie Holmquist's latest column on what to expect when you're expecting totalitarianism. This one rang very, very true. Annie says, when the political jargon and posturing one hears these days seems to suggest that we are in an era unlike any that has ever occurred before. Hope springs anew, there's light at the end of the tunnel, politicians gush, and those of our elites who really want to impress with their knowledge of history. A reference to Abraham Lincoln fits the bill nicely, right? We're seeing a new birth of freedom. Well, she says, I'd agree that something is certainly in the process of being birthed, but I'd be hard-pressed to call that baby freedom. Some would even say this baby bears uh, the better bears the opposing name of totalitarianism. But she says, before we throw labels around, it's helpful to know what we mean by such terms. And I like that she's defining her terms here. What does totalitarianism look like? Now, Robert Nesmith, in his 1953 classic, uh, gives some, some answers to that question. His classic was called The Quest for Community. Tell me if any of this rings true. Number one, politics is everything. Nisbet says, in the totalitarian order, the political tie becomes the all in all. Gone is the importance of the individual. Instead, individuals become cogs in the machine of a centralized government. Now, this situation creates a psychological setting that alone makes possible the massive remaking of human consciousness. Number two, he says, hiding behind a front of democracy. Nisbet infers totalitarian government does not wish to appear as the controlling, centralizing power that it is. Instead, the power of the government must seem to proceed from the basic will of the people. So when authoritarian laws are passed, they will be framed as necessary for the preservation of democracy, even when it can clearly be seen that nothing could be furthered from the truth. Doing so enables the government to bend, soften, and corrode the will to resistance, in preference to forcible and brutal breaking of the will. Number three, diversity is abolished. Now, Annie points out, diversity is a pet issue for many in our government and culture today, but what a lot of people fail to realize is that under totalitarian rule, the natural diversity of society is swept away. In its place comes militaristic conformity to the party line in art and in politics, in science and economy. Totalitarian government, it seems, is cancel culture on steroids. Okay, that rings true. Number four, new replaces old. Okay, we're getting a pretty good lesson in this right now. And he says, perhaps one of the most prominent features of a totalitarian regime is its quest to replace the old with the new. The past becomes synonymous with the bad and everything is redefined. History, art, science, morality, all of these must be redesigned and placed in a new context in order to make of a power a seamless web of certainty and conformity. 
Now, she says the replacement of the new with the old is necessary because, as Nisbet explains, totalitarianism is an ideology of nihilism. But nihilism is not enough. Thus, while totalitarianism must remove the old in order for its new ideology to function, it also recognizes that something must fill the void left by the loss of faith and community. So to this end, it attempts to implement a larger group effort which points back to the political and offers allegiance to the state. And the question remains as to whether we've seen these traits play out in our own society of late. So she says, let's go down the list. This is pretty convincing, by the way. Is politics everything, she asks? Well, it certainly seems like it. You almost have to become a Luddite in order to get away from hearing political conversation. Even when one is not bombarded with politics on the news, political jargon somehow manages to creep into our private lives at work, in conversations, even in our entertainment options. How about democracy or diversity? Now, these terms are certainly thrown around a lot these days, but whether or not we're really seeing democracy in action or experiencing true diversity of thought, that's up for debate in an era where genuine censorship is happening right before our eyes. Finally, she asks, where is the old being whitewashed by the new? Well, you don't have to look far. Toppled statues abound. The 1619 Project exemplifies attempts to change and undermine the historical narrative. That younger generations uh, will now accept uh, sexual moral immorality as normal. And even science seems to drift along with the political winds. Climate change, anyone? So, if we are now indeed experiencing totalitarian government more than ever, Annie asks, how can we keep ourselves from being sucked into the vortex, simply becoming another mindless cog in the totalitarian machine? You ready for the answer? The answer is to swim upstream and foster those things which totalitarian government is against. If they want us to erase our memories of history, community, morality, and faith, well, then we need to cling very tightly to those things. That memory muscle can be strengthened, says Annie Holmquist, by reading good books, studying history, discussing the gleanings from these sources with others, regularly attending church, getting involved with the community there, inviting that community into your home. That'll also increase your anti-totalitarian muscle. And she says, last but not least, embracing family and expending energy to good morals and behavior to your children will not only be helpful for the current fight against totalitarianism, but for future battles as well. Nisbet said totalitarian, totalitarianism is a, an affair of mass attitudes. So to put it simply, Annie Holmquist says, don't run with the crowd. Got a link in today's show notes. Check it out at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. All right, it seems like Annie Holmquist is going to get a lot of recognition today, and, and she probably should. Annie is one of my uh, favored resources for wrong thinkers. I like that she has a really well-informed take. What she writes makes sense. But I also love that she comes at it with a, a kind of gentleness and... There's, there's a persuasion there. It, it's just, it's so non-bombastic. And, and maybe it's all those years of working in talk radio. I'm just, I'm ready for something that's, that's not quite so bombastic. So I wanted to share with you one other column from Annie Holmquist today, just because she, she just knocked it out of the park on both of these. Now, I probably don't have to tell you, times don't seem especially financial, financially stable at the moment. 
Maybe you're feeling it, uh, you know, you go to the grocery store and look around. Have you really noticed, for instance, how much the packaging of food has shrunk? It's been been a few weeks since I bought a half gallon of ice cream, but it's not a half gallon. They've dropped it down from, what was it, 64 ounces down to 50 ounces. Kind of crazy. It's, I know every, everything's getting more expensive or the price stays the same, but you know, the quantity has, has decreased. That's called shrinkflation. So the bottom line is we live in a time where financial stability is not really happening. Now it's a temporary thing. This is a season we're passing through, but, but it's also quite real. So Annie Holmquist has four tips to building financial stability, courtesy of Noah Webster. That's a name you've probably heard before. Now, her point here is not that uh, this is a surefire path to prosperity, but she does point out that sound life choices sure can help. So with inflation prices and bank failures all on the rise these days, Annie says many of us are looking anxiously toward our pocketbooks and wondering what we'll do when the financial crisis inevitably hits. Will we have to start over with our retirement fund or will we be impoverished in a matter of months? Well, there may not be a surefire way to completely shield ourselves from potential ruin, but there are ways to safeguard against it. One of those ways is tucked away in an obscure corner of American founder Noah Webster's American Spelling Book. Entitled Domestic Economy or the History of the Thrifty and Unthrifty, this spins the tale of two men, one a financial wizard, the other a financial failure. But their financial gains and losses aren't really the result of luck on the stock market or any special genius, no. Their financial acumen is more of a result of the life choices they made, leaving Webster inferring that the quest for material wealth starts with character. Ah, now she's got my attention here. So, number one, the early bird gets the worm. One of the first steps towards wealth depends on one's relationship with the alarm clock, Webster implies. The thrifty man is up with the chickens, rising early and getting started with his day. Such an action is only possible, however, because... He refuses to burn the candle at both ends, heading to bed at a reasonable hour. The unthrifty man, however, is not a morning person taking a leisurely approach to getting going each day, a fact which eventually leads to great consternation and distress. And although Mr. And although Webster doesn't mention it, the frantic, always-behind nature of Mr. Unthrifty indicates that bedtime will be far away by the time the clock strikes 10 p.m. Number two, a fool and his money are soon parted. When Mr. Unthrifty finally pulls himself out of bed in the morning, getting immediately to his work is not his first order of business. Instead, he hops on over to the bar or walks to the liquor cabinet, but rather than brace him to face the day's tasks as he likely hopes, Webster explains the drink dulls his sensibilities and causes him to throw his money away. By contrast, Webster defines Mr. Thrifty as one who does not frequent the tavern, nor does he drink up all his earnings in liquor that does him no good. Now, it's important to remember that this warning from Webster doesn't necessarily apply to alcohol alone. The root principle here is that the thrifty man considers where his hard-earned dollars are going and ensures that he's not continually wasting his paycheck on items that have little lasting value or ones that diminish his ability to compete in the working world. Number three, waste not, want not. Annie Holmquist writes, when we think of waste, We often think of things that go in the trash can, such as old food. But according to Webster, the thrifty individual is careful not to waste his most important commodity, time. Now, this is particularly true as Mr. Thrifty goes about his daily tasks, 
When in the field, Webster writes, he keeps steadily at work, though not so violently as to fatigue, fatigue rather, and exhaust the body. He also does not fritter away his time by constantly being the work blo- work box. Let's try that again. Workplace chatterbox, telling stories and stopping to hear others gab away at the water cooler. Time is continually getting away from Mister Unthrifty. However, in fact, the unthrifty man is continually running behind, but makes a good show of busyness as he tries to catch up. Now he is in a great hurry. Webster writes. He bustles about to make preparation for work, and what is done in a hurry is ill done. He loses part of the day in getting ready. Now, sadly, it's not his time alone that's wasted in such efforts. Webster notes another ill effect of his lost time is that he also wastes the time of those who work under him, likely leading to more lost profits for his business. And finally, number four, no gains without pains. For the thrifty man, prompt foresight and good management are key to his monetary gains. He accepts the bills that inevitably come, then turns around and promptly pays them. In doing so, he avoids late fees and fines, allowing his nest egg to swell. He also keeps his possessions in good shape, examining the tools to see whether they are all in good order for the workman, keeping an eye on the condition of his house, barn, home lot, and stock. By doing so, he avoids the panic and lost time that Mr. Unthrifty drifts into, for the latter ends up in one of those nightmare scenarios in which one never gets anywhere. When he supposes he is ready to begin the work of the day, he finds he has not the necessary tools, or some of them are out of order. The plowshare is to be sent half-mile to a blacksmith to be mended. A tooth or two in a rake or the handle of a hoe is broke, or a scythe or an axe is to be ground. So the end result is, over time, each of these small endeavors add up, and Mr. Thrifty becomes a wealthy man, the owner of a profitable estate with several hundred acres of land and a hundred head of cattle. Mr. Unthrifty, however, experiences continual losses because of his poor choices, dragging out some years of disappointment, misery, and poverty. The difference between the two, writes Webster, is that one man spends only the interest of his money, while another spends the principal. So the question is, which man are you? Now, Annie says, I must confess that while many would likely call me a good manager of money, the portraits of thrifty and unthrifty lead me seeing my own reflection all too often in the latter. Which leads me to ask whether we, in this time of potential economic downturn, could be far better off financially than we lead ourselves to believe. Now, I love her answer. It all comes down to whether we have the character, the diligence, to be precise, to approach life walking in the boots of Mr. Thrifty. I know, you know, this is a time where, stat, well, I guess this has always been true. Status has always been a very important means of showing people, hey, I'm a serious person. As you can see by my Mercedes parked out here in the parking lot, I'm a serious person. I drive a serious car. I wear serious clothing. I live in a serious neighborhood, right? I mean, that's, these are the, the accoutrements of success. And by the way, if you have a Mercedes, I'm, I'm happy for you. I'm not trying to say you don't deserve that. I'm just saying the, the outward show of success is very, very hard to resist. We've all felt that pressure to keep up with the Joneses at some time. And, um, you know, it's very, very hard, especially for young people, looking at, you know, what's popular in terms of clothing and whatnot. But it's hard for adults, too. I'll tell you, I, I have the most respect for people who have means but have learned to live beneath those means, who are frugal. Um, Tyler is one of my good friends. He's one of my most trusted friends. 
And and Tyler always he always looks great. I mean, he's not like dressed to the nines like he's a man about town, but he always is clean, presentable. Um, the guy takes care of himself. And so I'm always a little bit surprised when he reminds me, yeah, he says, I do most of my shopping at, uh, you know, DI or Goodwill or, you know, one of the uh, one of the donation stores. But because he's diligent and he doesn't always just go in there with, I got money burning a hole in my pocket. I got to buy something, got to buy something. He'll sit there and shop around. And by gosh, he really does find some great deals. So I have a lot of admiration for the people who can be thrifty. And I think it really does come down to character. Speaking of which, I think I've got some work to do on this, so I'm going to get on that. We'll be back in a minute. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Just want to take a very quick moment here to thank those of you who uh, support this program financially, you know, uh, emotionally. Those those of you who take the time to to drop me an email and tell me, hey, just want you to know this this is good information or this is something that really helped me. It's it's wonderful. I appreciate it more than you know, and and I, I don't say this to elicit any kind of of self pity. I never know. I don't have a clue. How many people are listening? People will often ask me, hey, how's the show going? How's uh, how's the podcast version of the show going? I honestly don't know. As in, I couldn't give you a hard number. Well, you know, I'm glad you asked. You know, 5,500 people downloaded this episode. I don't know what the number is. This is the only thing that I know for sure, is there are people out there like you who are looking for an informed take, not because I'm so informed and I have it all figured out, but just... Information from the various authors, the various guests, the various resources that are available. You know, you're just looking for a good take. Why? Because you know that there are things going on where this matters. And you probably understand at some level that what's coming at us through the mass media sources, including conservative media, is still pretty thoroughly worked over before it ever gets to us. So thank you for availing yourself of this show. I know there are so many voices out there and others who are likewise trying to do the same. I don't do this as if I am the answer to everybody's prayers. Oh, well, here's the information you need. I just know that there are people out there who are looking for that information. And, and for whatever reason, there are people out there who say, you know what? I trust your voice or I, you, you hit the right nerve with me. Now that's... That's not something I take lightly. Okay, I I appreciate your trust. I hope that I have earned it. And I hope that I can continue to maintain it. And we'll never do anything to cause you to doubt my credibility. All right, that said, I want to confess one of my favorite little indulgences. Uh, My my son David introduced me to uh, Clarkson's Farm. And this is Jeremy Clarkson from um, Top Gear. Brilliant, brilliant, you know, television personality, funny guy. I've uh, I've I've watched a lot of uh, a lot of his programs, but I really have enjoyed Clarkson's Farm because it uh, it really shows what goes into. I mean, it's 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 like micros, dirty jobs combined with Top Gear and a, a whole bunch of uh, bad language. Clarkson's got a bit of a potty mouth, but the most important thing I have learned from his uh, his incredible uh, Clarkson's Farm show 
is the amazing amount of bureaucracy that he has to deal with in Great Britain. I, I, it's, it's stunning. And, and actually, I'm going to share a story with you today about badgers and environmental laws. This is from Peter Schwenison. This is from the American Institute for Economic Research. A viral meme making the round says that the American badgers look like they're about to drag you into a back alley and pull a shiv on you to demand money for their meth habit. European badgers look like they're about to invite you over for a cup of tea and some custard creams at a little cottage in the country. Now, the difference in caricature, he says, may help explain the widely differing legal and environmental approaches to dealing with badgers as pests. So, in America, badgers in Kansas, for instance, are a protected fur-bearing species that may be hunted or trapped. In Europe, however, they are insulated from practically any kind of human interference whatsoever. So this difference in protections is more than an arcane legal triviality. In some important ways, in fact, Badger's legal protections help illuminate the labyrinthine effect of environmental regulations globally. They may also, we hope, portend the impending decline of the overweening eco-tyranny. So take Holland, for instance. Commuter trains between Den Bosch and Eindhoven were stopped recently and passengers forced to add an hour-long detour to their daily grind. Now, one might be forgiven for blaming this on obscure Dutch, some obscure Dutch rail strike or the like, but at last the culprit was badgers. We're talking the tea-swilling kind, not the shiv-pulling kind. Dutch badgers have apparently taken to burrowing under the train tracks possibly delighting as badgers would in the mayhem caused by the fact that Dutch engineers are forbidden from removing them, pitting mankind's prevailing modern environmental ethos against the basic strictures of modern transportation engineering is, from a badger's perspective, brilliant. Now, authorities are in a bit of a pickle. Europe's Nature Conservation Act prevents wild animals from being disturbed or removed from their natural environments. So that creates something of a catch-22 when the wildlife decides that its favored natural environment is a decidedly human-made one. So badgers happen to like the dry, elevated railway berms and apparently have no finicky finicky qualms about rail cars whizzing inches over their heads. So Dutch engineers are scrambling to come up with ways to keep the modern railway system running while not falling afoul of a law which forbids the badger's outright removal. Now, the Dutch example is the epitome of regulatory sclerosis, the moment when a fine network of restrictive rules and laws becomes so obstructive that it palpably slows societal function. Now, some of this derailing is accidental. It's the end of a line laid with good intentions. Much of it, however, is by design. Many who successfully advocate for environmental legislation like Europe's, uh, Europe's Nature Conservation Act are, dis- are fixedly determined to roll back human living standards by prioritizing nature above man. How about that? And of course, uh, the notion is, is balderdash. You know, human consumption and development, well, they need to take a back seat. But this ostensibly bucolic uh, pre-industrial, the ostensibly bucolic pre-industrial days were no gentler on the environment, think mass deforestation and wildlife extermination, than it was on humanity. So advocating for the return to an age when children could be reliably counted on to die of typhus, that's no more likely to save nature than advocating for the return to an age when slash and burn was de rigueur. Now we're going to be seeing more and more of this because voters like to see environmental protection measures in the abstract. But when it starts to impinge on their lived experience, say like tacking an extra hour on their commute, well, 
That's when they start to get a little bit testy, but we're going to see more of it. As ever more stringent measures are taken to curb climate change, more anger is going to erupt over the impositions. The days of distant elites toying with our lives, in other words, are numbered. Okay, that's good news. The hit reality series Clarkson's Forum illustrates this tension in a delightfully comedic way. It depicts the tribulations of a modern, nature-loving British couple attempting to navigate the vagaries of local, national, and transnational restrictions on their aspirations. Interestingly enough, the star of the show, Jeremy Clarkson, like the Dutch authorities, finds himself in a badger conundrum as well as their expanding population threatens to infect his cow herd with tuberculosis. And his advisor tells him, Unfortunately, Jeremy, you're facing one of the most heavily legislated mammals in the country. Jeremy replies, You can't shoot them? Nope. Or gas them? No. Or fill in their holes? No. It's always no. Now, Clarkson's farm is riven with Jeremy's astonishment and frustration at the degree to which he's prevented from just getting on with things by faceless bureaucracies. And by the way, the show's popular success is a testament to the nerve it strikes within a generally fed-up public. Those nattering nabobs of nannyism who for decades have found ways to forestall the independent actions of their fellow men may soon discover that those tracks lead nowhere. Again, this is Peter Schwenison writing for the American Institute for Economic Research. If you haven't checked out Clarkson's Farm, I strongly recommend it. Although, if you have small kids, uh, you know, his, his language is... It's, it's not for the children. It's not that he's a horrible, profane man, but he just, he speaks pretty freely, and that means sometimes he's throwing some cuss words out there. So, but if you want to see what, what bureaucracy is like, and, and of course it's going to vary, you know, here in America from place to place. One of the most enlightening conversations I had was with some friends from California, and just trying to get a feel for, okay, so they wanted to add a bedroom onto their existing home. Now, they've lived in this home for years. They probably had it paid off. I mean, they're, they're a good-sized family. They've, they've had stability. But because they thought, well, you know, we would like to add a bedroom to, to our home. They started listing for me the number of people who had to be in on that process, who had to sign off on it. It's not just, well, the building inspector. It's not just, you know, the zoning department. I, I lost track of how many different bureaucracies they had to visit, how many different bureaucrats whose permission they had to obtain. And of course, every person you contact has their hand out. Well, of course, yes, this is going to cost money. And to me, that's just the perfect illustration of this is what bureaucracy is. It's just someone in a position of created authority who uh, needs you to pay them to tell you whether or not you need them. I mean, this is, wow. Talk about a self-licking ice cream cone. Let's see, that's going to be 50 bucks uh, for me to tell you whether or not you need me to uh, administer your affairs or otherwise be over you or send you paperwork to fill out on a regular basis. And by the way, I'm really sorry if I'm offending anybody who works in one of those bureaucratic positions. I'm sorry, but it just seems so entirely unnecessary. And I'll go on the record as saying, you know, when... When an agency says, hey, we need you to pay us 50 bucks so you can so we can tell you whether or not you need us to oversee your affairs. I just flat out tell them, if you don't know right now that you are needed, then there's our answer. I'm not going to pay you 50 bucks just to say, nope, looks like you don't need us. I've already figured that out. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Fourth and final segment today. By the way, if you haven't subscribed to my show, you'll find that uh, it is published five times a week. It airs on the weekends on fine radio stations. And, of course, uh, I'm sure there's some underground fight club that is screening it. No, I guess they're not. Maybe maybe not. But uh, anyway, it's not nearly the clandestine affair that, that some would make it out to be. But thanks to those of you who hit the subscribe button and subscribe to my show notes, please go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You'll also find links to my various sponsors, whom I love and appreciate, because without them, you know, they, they keep the, the wolves as well as the creditors away from my door. Okay, two articles to touch on. I'm going to start with the article of the day. J.B. Shirk, one of my favorite writers from AmericanThinker.com. Great article on end fiat money and forever wars. You realize you can't have imperial forever war mentality without that fiat currency. Isn't that something? There's a, there's a great essay that he quotes from Mark... Uh, Jeftovich, arguing that World War III has been in the works ever since industrial nations jettisoned the classical gold standard at the outbreak of World War I. Jeftovich uh, recounts how everything changed once governments assound, uh, abandoned rather sound money in order to finance long wars. Now, he says, from the mid-1600s all the way to 1914, the gold-linked British pound remained remarkably stable, even increasing its relative value to gold over these two and a half centuries, no doubt because of its proven resilience through myriad crises. Now, Jeftovich says, in 1914, at the beginning of World War I, the gold standard was thrown overboard within a few weekends. In order to finance wars, the world resorted to deficit spending and paper money. Had the gold standard not been given up, the war would not have lasted more than a few months. Instead, it lasted more than four years and ruined most of the major economies in the world and left millions dead in its wake. Think about that for a moment. Had World War II just lasted six months, currencies would not have been destroyed. There would have been no Versailles Treaty, no German hyperinflation, neither Hitler nor Lenin nor Stalin would ever have come to power. There never would have been a World War II or a half-century Cold War that left the prospect of nuclear Armageddon hanging over an anxious world like an atomic-tipped sword of Damocles. Yeah. Isn't that something? I'll, I'll leave this to you to uh, discover for yourself. It's in the show notes. Again, this is from J.B. Shirk, End Fiat Money, and Forever Wars. Now, here's the topic I want to get onto, and this is kind of an uncomfortable one because this is going to challenge some of the notions, but considering how fixated our government and news media were over every single COVID case, isn't it strange that there's a veil of silence over all the excess deaths being recorded throughout the world right now? Sonia Elijah says, around the world, there has been a deafening silence over excess deaths in the, from governments and the mainstream media who not so long ago were quite fixated on the daily death toll for COVID. So October 20th, a 30-minute adjourned debate, 20 rejections later, on excess deaths in the UK House of Commons was finally secured by Andrew Bridgen, Member of Parliament for Northwest Leicestershire and Member of the Reclaim Party. Now, 
Bridgeton began his, uh, his speech to the sound of erupting cheers from the full upper public gallery in stark contrast to the almost empty chamber below. The question is, where were the hundreds of MPs who would normally sit shoulder to shoulder in the chamber? Well, it appears an increase in deaths of their constituents wasn't a pressing issue for them on that Friday afternoon. Now, let's get into some of the numbers here. We've experienced more excess deaths since July 2021 than in the whole of 2020. Unlike the pandemic, however, these deaths are not disproportionately of the old. In other words, the excess deaths are striking down people in the prime of life, but no one seems to care. And the author says, I fear history will not judge this house kindly. Strikingly, excess deaths have been seen across all age groups from which Bridgeton points out in his speech. Now, there's a graph included here that shows the pooled weekly total number of deaths for all ages from 27 participating countries. The important point on, uh, according to the British Medical Journal, the excess deaths are calculated as the difference between the current number of deaths and those in a baseline year, and that excess can differ depending on the baseline and methodology used. Now, they go into some of the intricacies of this, but I'm just going to float this out, out there for you. Why are there so many all-age excess deaths? In younger age groups, too, especially. And it would appear that much like the numbers were being cooked to make us believe that everybody was dying of COVID, even that motorcycle accident victim, well, we tested him and he was positive for, you know, uh, he showed up you know, positive on the COVID test. Well, uh, yeah, his body's in three pieces. Yeah, but he died of COVID. Okay, you know, how can you see something like that and not wonder, okay, are they just are they just cooking the numbers? I know there were some perverse incentives regarding uh, respirators, regarding, you know, hospitalizations and so forth. In other words, hospitals were paid money, received federal money for each patient that uh, that was recorded as as being a, a covid patient. Yeah, it kind of provides incentive to, to cook the numbers. But the thing that's really going to be curious, and again, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how this truth gets out. Are we seeing excess deaths, particularly in heavily vaccinated countries? Because it appears that, uh, that there, there's a lot of unexplained deaths that are taking place. And some of this is, you know, from blood clots, some of us from cardiac arrest. There's anomalies within the, the Pfizer clinical trial that, that are raising questions. So it really makes you wonder if these excess deaths are, are something that will be explained or if we're just supposed to pretend like they're not happening. Now, again, going back to this member of, of parliament, He stated the following. He said, the experimental COVID-19 vaccines are not safe. They are not effective. Despite there being only limited interest in the chamber from colleagues, I'm very grateful to those who have attended. We can see from the public gallery there is considerable public interest. So Bridgeton said, I implore all members of the House, those who are present and those who are not, to support calls for a three-hour debate on this important issue. Mr. Deputy Speaker, this might be the first debate on excess deaths in our parliament. Indeed, it might be the first debate on excess deaths in the world, but he says, very sadly, I promise you it will not be the last. Now, I understand this is going to make some people very uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable, and I'll tell you why, because about half my family is vaccinated. 
And I don't really want to confront the the possibility that uh, they may have taken something, you know, that that is going to to come back to haunt them or come back to bite them. That's a very frightening thought to me. At the same time, when I look back at how hard that vaccine was pushed, and I don't just mean the political goal of, you know, well, we just got to make everybody safe. Things were stated as fact that were not factual. If you take the vaccine, you will not get sick and you will not be able to pass sickness on to others. Totally false. In fact, truth be told, you know, it's it's the vaccinated members of my family that I think really have, have kind of suffered the worst, you know, at least this cold and flu season early on. I'm not looking for an opportunity to say, nah, I told you so. I'm just saying it's it clearly didn't work as advertised. It was rushed. It was pushed. It was coerced onto people. And then the same people who did the pushing have the absolute gall to turn around and tell us, well, we never, we never forced anybody. Well, that was everybody's decision. They did, they did that all on their own. Yeah, at the risk of losing their jobs, at the risk of not being able to dine out anymore, to, to go out into public, to enter the store, whatever it may be. Something was fishy about that from the very beginning. And I'm really not trying to flex when I tell you that, uh, you know, I, I'm so glad that I didn't give in to that incredible pressure because it was, it was pretty strong. It caused some, some pretty significant misunderstandings. But that's the price of thinking for yourself, and that is the price of questioning the narrative. So if you say, well, Brian, you know, this all sounds fine and dandy, but I don't like to be uncomfortable. You know what? I don't like it either. I don't, I don't like being uncomfortable, but I would rather be uncomfortable and would, would rather risk the discomfort of truths that, that could potentially put me on a, a better path than to just keep believing comfortable lies as I'm, you know, walking down to my destruction. Of course, your mileage may vary, but if you're looking for higher ground, I think it's this way. Not that I figured it all out myself, but I'm following some people who seem to have some pretty good footage. Or footing, I should say. Let's, let's go in their footsteps and see where it leads us. This is The Brian Hyde Show.